Hi, yeah, I'm Maggie Crow, and I am the Director of Patient and Family Services of Dorothy House Hospice. I'm a cancer nurse by background, and I um, have been working here for just over two years. So why do you think that death is such a dirty word? I think um, that is that comes from a fear of the unknown, um, and, and I think it's a cultural thing, so I think our culture has sort of um, developed this uh, sort of secrecy around it that makes it harder and harder, that makes it even more impenetrable. Uh, I think um, it's associated with uh, families and family dynamics and money and all of those things that are all sort of considered by the British, I think, as being sort of dirty things to discuss in the open. Uh, and I think um, it's... Yeah, I think people are, are, are terrified of it. I think there's a lot of fear associated with it because they don't know what to expect, so they just would rather not go there. What inspired you, therefore, to work in palliative care? Um, and so it's a mixture of things, really. It's a sort of, in part my career progression to date, um, all the way through my nursing career, I have um, worked with people who had life-limiting illnesses and were dying, and um, certainly latterly in some of my more senior clinical roles, um, palliative care was a, a big aspect of that, particularly with people with ovarian cancer. Uh, it's always been an important part of my practice to have those difficult conversations with patients and their families around the reality. I think I'm a, I'm a highly transparent and honest person who, uh, who, who feels it's really important to, to have those open conversations. I think also my background, my, my childhood, um, I was brought up, although I'm not a religious person now, I was brought up um, in a religious family uh, where death and the afterlife were talked about. Um, and certainly my parents were very much um, of the view that they weren't scared of death, they weren't scared of dying, their, their faith um, enabled them to feel quite positively about it. So I think that's a big, a large element of, of where it comes from for me. Can you tell me a little bit about your own family's experience of end of life and their attitudes towards it? Yeah, so um, obviously, as I was saying, my mum and dad were really very open about their deaths. They were very um, proactive around their preparation for it. They were very open to talking about what was in their wills um, and the fact that they were all done and dusted and written. Uh, you know, because they had a strong faith, they weren't scared about dying and they were very keen to ensure that advocacy was arranged for them through their older age. Uh, I'm, I'm one of five siblings, so we all had different views and I, I'm the one that is a nurse, so I tended to take a bit of a lead with supporting my mum and dad in their old age. That was quite interesting because it was quite frustrating for me because I wanted them to do it differently, but they were always going to do it their way. They'd worked it through, they weren't scared of it, and they they, they wanted just to, they'd had a very fulfilled life, uh, and they just wanted to be able to stop, I think. And for me, you know, I was trying to encourage them, you know, as a sort of solution finder, a problem solver, and somebody, you know, that was, uh, had, you know, as a, as a nurse, had always tried to find solutions for people.
convictions, I found it quite difficult to let them do it their way and to feel that it was okay to let go and let them let them just do that. So so it was it was an exasperating time, particularly when they decided to sell the family home and go into a into care homes together. They went in together, which was really lovely. Um, but it caused a lot of angst for me and my brothers and sisters uh, in terms of their decision making around that. Thankfully, they were pretty determined and um, never never listened to anything we said and did it their own way, which was brilliant. Uh, but but it was tough. Yeah, it was a tough couple of years, and then um, certainly for. Uh, uh, my dad, particularly, who was much fitter, my mum did have a chronic illness. She had a, a Parkinson's disease, um, which, interestingly, the consultant told her wouldn't kill her, which, of course, was a lie. It did. Um, and, uh, but she, so she was, she was unwell and had mobility issues, whereas my father was actually really well and still gardening um, and growing his own fruit veg and stuff. When they moved into the care home, so that all stopped. So that was, you know, a big shock for him. He he did it. He didn't really want to go, but he did it for love of my mum, which was amazing. And then they were in there about five years, sharing a little sort of bedsit together in the care home. And um, my mum ended up having a massive stroke. My dad had becoming was becoming frailer and frailer with heart disease because he wasn't mobile and wasn't active. And um, and mum had, yeah, as I say, she had a massive stroke and died at the uh, end of August and my dad died three weeks later um, without really having anything particularly diagnosed or wrong with him. He did have a chest infection at the time and he did have this underlying heart failure, but, you know, we weren't expecting it. But he, you know, mum was done and he was done. So, yeah, it was quite a quite an eventful summer, um, but uh, they did it their way and I... You know, in retrospect, can do nothing but admire them for it. They had a plan, at least. They had a plan, and they just went with the flow. They rode the wave. Um, they didn't make a big hoo ha about it. There was no secrecy. There was no, um, you know, they weren't sort of uh, timid about talking about it. They were comfortable, and they did did it their way. Yeah. What do you think outstanding end of life care looks like? I think I think if um, you talk about in the last days of life, hours of life, then I think you can talk about it in terms of um, being at peace, uh, being pain-free, symptoms um, that are well controlled. So, for example, agitation, um, pain, as I said, and just 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 being at peace and and feeling like you've done everything that you wanted to do before that time. Um, and I think that's, you know, even if it's way before a natural time of life um, for you to be dying, I think that, you know, to have been able to have had those opportunities, to have had the discussions that you wanted to have, to have done the things that you wanted to do um, in the time that you have, I think for me personally, that's uh, what outstanding end of life care looks like. I think if you sort of expand out in terms of the time frame, and here at Jonathan House we talk about the last 1,000 days of life, I think it's living the best quality of life that you possibly can do up until the point at which you die, um, which is, is slightly different from that, that very, very end point, but it, you know, one almost leads into another. If, if all of that time is spent preparing, thinking, doing, 
living in the moment and, and living as well as possible, then I think you're more likely to be at peace at that very end point. So I suppose that's how I, I visualise it in my head in terms of what we're, what we're trying to achieve here and I guess what I would like for myself as well. Do you think all of the outstanding elements of the palliative care that you've just described are currently present within the NHS system? Absolutely not. No, I, I don't think so at all. I think that, um, well, I don't know whether it's a cultural thing, a financial thing, or a mixture of all of the above, and um, and also our, our reluctance to talk about it, and um, sort of for you know, within a medical model, I think we find it really difficult to accept failure, and that it's almost as if death is failure, as opposed to totally normal. Um, and I think that um, the NHS finds it, you know, staff within the NHS find it difficult to have those conversations because they're there to put something right and not to accept that death is inevitable. Um, I think that's, you know, the way people are trained uh, within the NHS. And, um, you know, the, the, I think there's also this whole um, concern around um, being ageist, um, particularly if we talk about people in, in um, the latter years of their life, is it ages not to offer um, uh, medicine and um, intervention? And, and I think it's it's about that Ill, inability to have those absolutely honest conversations about you know the choices, giving people choices. You can choose one thing or you can choose another thing. These would be the outcomes from those things that you choose, and you can make that decision. And I think that. Um, I think there's pockets of amazingly good practice uh, and certainly in um, oncology, I think, um, in my area of speciality, I've seen a real um, move towards thinking really carefully about continuing to offer treatment after treatment after treatment without having those difficult conversations about quality of life and the um, potential outcomes of continuing to have treatments. So I think it is improving, um, but I still think there's a long, long way to go. And I think, you know, the example I gave of my mum being told that Parkinson's disease wouldn't kill her is an exact example of that. But it wasn't considered to be a long-term condition that would require some discussion about the choices mum could make throughout that. And I think that happens time and time again within the NHS. Why is it so important that we have honest conversations about death? It's a basic human right. I think um, we can, we're better human beings if we're making informed choices. I think that if we are informed about what we can expect, what the likely outcome of actions are, um, and we're given the responsibility and the empowerment of knowledge to make those decisions, then I think we're better human beings. And, it's, it, and it takes the fear out of it, it takes the unknown out of it, because if we're not given those opportunities, if we're not given that information, then we, we, we're living in darkness, we're living in uncertainty. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I say uncertainty, there's, you know, with the human body, there's always uncertainty. But if we can be more certain about some of those uncertainties, well, I think that's got to help us. I think it's inhumane. Um, to not have those honest conversations. And I know that we do come across people that say to us, no, don't tell me, I don't want to know, I don't want to have that conversation. But I think it's important that they are supported 
to do so. Um, and sometimes I've been in situations in my career where family members have said, please don't tell them what they've got. Don't tell them what's happening to them. I don't want them to know it will break them. And I always think that's, you know, it's, it's doing those people an injustice because they actually probably already know in their own minds what's going on. So let's just have an open conversation about it, um, as difficult as that might seem. And then actually we can um, try and make the very, very best um, of the time that's left. How have your own personal experiences and your career development influenced your ethical death? I think I'm a pragmatic kind of a girl. I'm, I'm always curious, so I think my personality type lends itself to wanting to understand stuff and, and know about it. I'm also um, you know, a great believer in um, human rights and choices. I think that um, my nursing career has given me a huge amount of experience. I've seen the good and I've seen the terrible. Um, so I know what I choose for myself because I've seen I've seen the worst of it and I don't want that for me. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I don't want to die. I really don't. I really want to live. Um, and I really want to make the absolute best of the time that I've got. I've, um, I'm 59. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pack my life full of good, fun stuff and the notion that I know I'm going to die. Um, and I suppose I've learned that through my career. I think um, as a cancer nurse, I've seen a lot of people die early um, from a disease that can be really, really cruel. Um, I know what can happen. So I think um, all of my experiences have left me, you know, wanting the best for myself um, to make the best use of the time that I've got um, and to know that um, when I do die, I've not wasted a minute, you know, I've filled it all, I've done some great stuff and, you know, lived in the moment and uh, I've really taken every single opportunity that's been offered me. So, um, you know, I think some people think I'm a bit crazy that, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm always keeping really busy, but um, I think, I, you know, I think I've seen too much of people dying um, with regrets. I've sat opposite people. Uh, receiving chemotherapy um, on a number of occasions and they said to me I, I retired three months ago and now look you know so you don't wait until you retire to do stuff do it you know don't wait um, for some days to wait Sunday best you know just wear it now and do it now I just I'm just a firm believer in season development um, and I guess that all comes from you know my, my childhood my career, all the experiences that I've had, and um, you know, I don't know how many years I've got left in me, but I'm, I'm going to fill them full of fun. What are your aspirations for end of life care in Bates Winter Wiltshire? Um, I think a big um, aspiration is equality. I think that at the moment we have got such a multifaceted way of managing that across that patch that. I think we've got to come together as um, specialist palliative care providers and agree on taking forward something that is accessible to everybody um, and available to everybody. And I think the other, you know, um, equality is the first E, the second E is empowerment. So I think, you know, I love our mission statement around death being a part of life. And I think that 
trying to empower people to um, accept death as normal and, and bring it into their thinking so that they can make choices around their life because they know it's inevitable. So I think it's uh, equality and empowerment that I think is uh, my, my big ambitions for it. And some of that is around um, you know, supporting the general public um, in that, whether that be through schools or community groups or whatever it happens to be, um, care homes even. Um, but also through the professionals um, that are involved in specialist palliative care and really having this sense of um, us being on a mission not to do everything for everybody, but to show them how they can do it um, and share our expertise. I, I'm a strong believer in everything that we do as, as um, specialist nurses is to do ourselves out of the job, to um, just give up give all of our knowledge and expertise and experience um, and skill to other people so that they can use it. Do you think end-of-life appointed care planning is appropriately provided yet in care home settings? My personal experience of that is no. Um, uh, and it's my understanding that it's not. I think that there are some areas of amazingly good practice um, and support and you'll find um, amazing uh, primary care teams that are really working hard on some of this stuff and have um, a real passion for it. But I think that that you know takes me back to what I was saying earlier about equality. I think it's it's patchy. I don't think it's um, driven enough from a policy perspective um, to make sure that it's uh, consistent, it's consistently available to everybody, and it's such an important part of. In care homes, you know, I think you know, as a nation, we don't really invest enough in um, the elderly um, within this uh, within our population and all of the needs that they have. And I think that if we did some of that planning, then the investment would flow because they'd find a way to do some of that themselves. It, it wouldn't take as much resource as it feels as if it needs at the moment if we could just support them through some of the planning work. Why do you like working for Dorothy House? Or I applied for the job because uh, it was it was actually really good timing for me in my career. I was looking for a leadership uh, role before I retire. Um, and it seemed like a great opportunity. I knew um, some of the senior staff here already because I'd met them on my career journey already, and that's great. They were good people that I really respected. Um, and it also feels like there's uh, a lot to be done here, so that's a real sense that I can, you know, in some small way make a bit of a difference here. And I also just uh, the size of it is great. It makes things feel quite manageable um, in terms of the interaction between different sections of the organisation. And I think that, you know, as a nurse, you just want to be working. It's just great to be working somewhere where um, care is so good. Uh, it makes you feel really proud. And, you know, I, that's what I went into nursing for. And if I retire after the job um, here at Dorothy House, where, you know, the care is outstanding where you can go above and beyond and really make a difference to individuals, families and communities, then you know what a lucky girl am I. 
What are your ambitions for Dorothy House in the next three years? Okay, so uh, we've got a great strategy, which I really believe in, um, and I'm, I feel really strongly that we can achieve it in the time that I'm going to be working here and, uh, and that's left in the strategy. So I think that uh, we want to reach more people. We want to be uh, known as an organisation that's there for people um, towards the end of their life, whether they have cancer or any other disease. That's really important to me. Uh, I feel quite competitive about the fact that I want us to really nail the strategy and I, think, and I honestly think that we can. We've got some great teams um, who I think really get it and uh, want to deliver it. So, so that's fantastic. But then also I think I have a real ambition to empower staff to uh, really believe in and use all of their knowledge and skills to feel that they can advance the practice of their profession, whether it be nursing, physiotherapy, dietetics, OT, lot of a whole range of fantastic clinical staff here who I think are underachieving. And I would love to see them really coming, um, becoming very, very confident in their role within the multidisciplinary team and feeling that they uh, can really be part of um, naming the strategy and um, just singing the singing out about their their profession and who they are and what they can achieve for patients and families. I think it would be great to uh, leave here knowing that they, there was a lot of clinical and professional confidence amongst the staff. What makes you proud to work for Dorothy House? I'm really proud of the fact that, um, as I was saying before, as a nurse, um, this is a place where care is so good, and that is, you know, you know, always um, gives me a sense of pride. Uh, the compliments and the feedback that we get from family members and patients about the care that they've received um, is incredible, and really makes me feel proud but I also feel a lot of pride about how staff are developing their knowledge and skills. I feel pride that we are uh, developing strong leaders here at Dorothy House and people that are very uh, community and outward facing as well that they're thinking about you know the, the breadth of what we can do and the impact that we can have in our wider community. So yeah huge sense of pride. Um, about the work that we do here. You know, the CPC outstanding rating makes me feel proud, but actually, you know, being on the ward and seeing how the staff are working together, um, you know, popping down onto the ward when they're celebrating Pride Week and having a cake, I feel a lot of pride about the happiness of staff around here. And, um, I, yeah, I think, I, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary place to work and I think that, you know, there's never a day goes by where I don't feel an element of pride, it's great. Can you tell us a little bit about the new compassionate community way of working? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I think that Dorothy House has always uh, considered itself to be a part of the community, but sometimes we approach that because we have the specialist knowledge and skills that we have in a way that is offering 
a service to the community. And the compassionate community work um, is going to just make us think a little bit differently about that and think about whether we can um, first, before we go in with our services and our offer, think about what already exists, think about what's positive, what the assets are within communities and whether actually they need us or they need us in quite the same way as we've always arrived. It may be that we can learn from them. To some extent, it's about taking the pressure off us as the professional doers and thinking we don't have to do it all because there's some really, there's a lot of strength in the communities that we serve. And if we um, work alongside them more and listen to them more, it might, might, it might alleviate some of the pressure that we feel to be the answer to everybody's problems. Um, through death and dying. So I think that's how I see it. Um, we're on a bit of a journey with it because it is a shift. Because I think, you know, I, I've been the same my whole career. You know, as a nurse, you always want to make things better. Uh, but I think that um, in doing so, sometimes we disempower people and uh, take away their ability to uh, figure things out for themselves. Um, absolutely, you know, that doesn't take away from the fact that there will be people and times when the expertise um, in um, the physical and psychological and social support that we can offer is needed. Uh, but I think we, um, we underestimate what is out there in our communities. And I think for me, Compassionate Communities is about working together in partnership. One piece of advice for anyone avoiding looking death in the face. My advice um, would be that I think, I believe, you'll regret it. That you will reach a stage where you wish you'd done things, planned things, prepared things, said things, hugged people. And I, I, I think that, you know, knowing that you're going to die gives you an opportunity to decide what you want to do before that happens and how you want it to be when it does happen and to some extent what happens after that happens as well. So, you know, don't, don't die with regrets about what you might have done if only you'd had that conversation or you told somebody that you loved them or you'd gone and climbed Kilimanjaro whatever it is don't don't die with